Balance your trading strategy by adding futures. CME Group helps you manage risk and capture opportunities in all market environments. Capitalize on around-the-clock access to highly liquid global futures and options market across all major asset classes. Just visit your online broker and get started. Plug into valuable educational materials and trading tools and see what adding futures can do for you at cmegroup.com slash on the tape. iConnections is the world's largest capital introduction platform in the alternative investment industry. iConnections membership only platform brings together the asset management community, providing allocators and managers with the opportunity to connect both physically and virtually. With an impressive network of over 4,000 allocators and 900 managers, their community oversees an astounding $48 trillion and $16 trillion in assets, respectively. iConnections is also the driving force behind the alternative investment industry's most renowned in-person events. We invite you to join iConnections at their upcoming event, Salt iConnections in New York, taking place on May 20th through the 21st at the Glass House in New York City. This two-day event is packed with one-on-one cap intro meetings and content. To explore more about iConnections events and gain access to their members-only platform, visit iConnections.io. As many of you have come to learn, I'm a huge fan of the classic rock, all classic rock. And one of the bands in the 1960s was a band called Traffic. Steve Winwood, Jim Capaldi, Dave Mason. By the way, Dave Mason's famous song was We Just Disagree. And some of the feedback that we've gotten, Dan Nathan, is we don't disagree enough. By the way, you're listening to the On The Tape podcast. I'm Guy Adami, always joined by Dan Nathan, always joined by Danny Moses. And today we're going to have a conversation with Joe Saluzzi, of Themis Trading. Now, the reason why I mentioned the great band Traffic, Steve Winwood, by the way, one of their songs was Dear Mr. Fantasy. Dear Mr. Fantasy, play us a tune, something to make us all happy. Do anything. Take us out <laughs> of this gloom. Sing a song, play guitar, make it snappy. And I'm guilty of being in the gloom. I get it. I want Mr. Fantasy to play us a tune. But I got to tell you something, Mr. Fantasy. That's all this is. It's a fantasy. Danny Moses, how are you today? I'm good. Something to make us all happy. <laughs> I like the Dave Mason better. There ain't no good guys. There ain't no bad guys. There's only you and me and Dan. We used to disagree. I think it was better when we disagreed on the markets. Because yeah. football season's coming. We're going to yeah. disagree on a lot oh, when yeah. that happens. But, Guy, I was thinking about the movie with one Loudon Swain sure. as the character. What movie was that guy? Vision Quest. And what was the theme song to that movie? Help me out here, Danny, because I know I just heard Red it. Red Rider okay. was the, the- Red Rider, yes. Lunatic Fringe, right? Lunatic Fringe. But one of the things that happened in that movie, that I learned a lot about wrestling. I tried it once, I think in middle school or something, that a reversal is worth two points in wrestling. Sure. I remember in that movie- I'm watching reversal, two points, escape. So we just had a reversal here as we sit here today. And I'm not excited about it, but I do want to point out- You're that pretty excited about it. Because I want 
the the wonkiness can matter sometimes. And maybe it gets reversed again and the market rips tomorrow and tomorrow futures are up 50 points because the Bank of Japan did nothing. But people that want to understand the dependence on the central banking system globally, which is really all this has been about, right? And I'll, I'll always underestimate it. It's my biggest fault. Well, is that when someone tries to pull liquidity mm -hmm. potentially out of the system, what are the repercussions of it? It's not just that money leaving the system, it's what happens to the instruments themselves. People don't care about the yen. It's gone big, you know, from 141 kind of out to 139. And okay, it's almost, it's a 1.6%, 1.7% move. If the Bank of Japan changes their yield curve control parameters, which is currently sitting between 25 and 50 basis points and goes to 50 to 75, we talked about it with Mike Wilson last week. We talked about it on Fast Money. Oh, was that last week? Yep. Jeez, what a long week this has been. It's really the only thing that matters. And yes, earnings matter. And there's been some very good earnings in terms of expectations were set low and they're beating them. We're going to talk about that. But again, just people to understand you get caught in this kind of whirlwind and it's bigger than just the NASDAQ and the S&P. It's global liquidity. And so I sit here and I just, and again, maybe rectifies itself by the time this thing airs tomorrow and it, yeah. it didn't matter. But anyway. So that was something that I, I think you and Mike Wilson were like squarely in the same camp on last Friday when we were recording that pod with him about what the BOJ was going to do. And it, we're Thursday into the close. It's a little after three o'clock. The S&P has reversed a percent and a half off its highs. The NASDAQ is reversed 2%. Those are big equity moves off of what the BOJ might or might not do relative to liquidity. Let's talk about this, guys, because for the better part of this year, excluding March, when we were in the middle of this regional banking crisis, it really has been lower left, upper right here. And the fact that something that BOJ could do could send our equities into a tailspin is not something that many folks like me, maybe normies in the market, had on their bingo card. We've been trying to figure out what is the thing that could cause a <laughs> 5 to 10% sell-off. We know that the Dow on Wednesday had its 13th consecutive closing in the green, which is pretty remarkable if you think First about time it. since 1987. Since 80, yeah. Something weird. EY from SoFi mentioned that to you and me, Guy. So, Guy, how should we be thinking about this? Is it something that wasn't going to be earnings related, right? Mm -hmm. It wasn't going to be geopolitical in a way. It was going to be monetary policy And Guy, move? before you answer, remember who told you, Janet Jackson. Two weeks ago on the tape podcast, I walked into the office, Dan, and I may have mentioned this, but for you new listeners, it's important. I walk into our office, beautiful office, by the way, and Danny is sitting there frantically writing notes, but he's singing to, and he's the only one in the room, by the way, and he's, he's doing this control. And I've looked at him quizzically. I'm like, first of all, you need to be medicated. I think we all agree on oh that. My God. Said, yes, what are you do. talking about? And he was talking about exactly that, these yield curve controls. And it does get a little wonky, but it's important to your point, Dan, it's not going to be something that you see coming, although clearly Danny saw it coming. It's going to be one of these ancillary things seemingly out of nowhere. And my concern for years, unfounded, by the way, I want to be crystal clear. My concerns in terms of what they would mean to the market have been completely unfounded, but central banks will continue to push buttons, seemingly do whatever they need to do. And at a certain point, they're going to push the wrong button or they're going to push what they think is the right button, but has the wrong ramifications. And quite frankly, what's been going on in Japan for quite some time is something to watch. It's been a bit of a sideshow. But these yield curve controls, the fact that they think they can control something that they have no control over whatsoever, may be making its way to a theater in the U, Danny Moses. There was something that happened in Washington yesterday. There was two things. One was a Jerome Powell presser, which I didn't care about. The other one, which explains everything, was this UFO panel thing. Okay. <laughs> explains everything. 
There's, I don't know. I finally found out who's been buying the market guy. It's extraterrestrial. It's not UFOs anymore. I, I, it's I, like UAP. Whatever you, that was. You guys want to hear a great podcast? Preparara, who has been a guest yeah. on our podcast, he had a guy. Wait, wait, he's not qualified for. He had a guy way named above that. Adam Frank on his podcast this morning. So okay. stay tuned with Preet. And this guy is an astronomer, and they talk about all this stuff, and it's really fascinating. So you check out Preet's podcast on that. But that was the one, Danny. That was more There's some guy, Jerome Powell, who may indeed be an alien, okay. was also yeah. speaking. But the one I'm just saying was a wild. It was really wild. And by the way. We've been having movies made now for decades about yeah. this stuff, right? You have to watch this hearing. These are credible people. They saw some shit, and it was really interesting to watch. Danny's explanation is the aliens have the been aliens. The market. There you That's go. It. So, Guy, let's take a step back here. So we were talking about things on the bingo card that could cause uh, a sell-off in the market. On July 18th, okay, Microsoft was trading at about $345, okay? And they put out a press release for the pricing of their Office Copilot suite of AI tools and what those would cost, okay? And the stock rallied 5% in a straight line, $130 billion. We talked about it last week on the pod. Go back and look at how this stock has traded. It has reported earnings earlier this week. It sold off, I think, 3 4% the day after its earnings. It is now down 10%. At its highs, it had a $2.7 trillion market cap. Mm -hmm. It had that huge move intraday and then reversal and then has continued to sell off on their guidance. I think July 18th is going to be one of those things. What do you like to do, guy? You, you say footnotes, something or this? Yeah, you got to put those little post-it notes. Vision Every quest. Once in a while, you got to put a post-it uh, note on something. I think and that, that's the day. I think that was the day. And, and, and I really do. We've heard from Google, the stock rally. Let's see if it can hold those gains, okay? Mm -hmm. Next week, we're going to have Amazon and we're going to have Apple, Danny, okay? And I think, again, that's four and a half trillion dollars of market cap those two companies on the same day if they can't put up a big beat and raise and i'll tell you based on what we saw from microsoft's cloud and even google cloud aws is not going to be particularly great okay apple has nothing going on as it relates to ai and they might have a really lame quarter as it relates to iphones as we think about into the september quarter that could have been it for the big cap mega cap ai trade frenzy you talked to gene munster yes i did he alluded to the fact that was some sort of pre-announcement and maybe all the good news was out and that proved to be somewhat prescient because again the quarter out of microsoft was fine. It was okay, but not nearly to the extent that it needs to be to maintain the valuation they got when the stock was trading north of $360. And I don't know if we can put this, what do they call those things? The show notes? Yeah, they call them the show notes. That's odd that they call them yeah. that. We, maybe we can put in a longer term chart of Microsoft because you will see a textbook double top from the fall of 2021. That level that we traded up to, the subsequent sell-off, we got it all back and now we're giving it away. And this is not to cast aspersions against Microsoft. I've said this, I'll say it again. I think it's one of the five or eight most important companies in the world, but it's also being compensated or being rewarded with a valuation that I don't think they deserve in this environment. Dan, I'll give you credit on this one. And it's not a boy who cried wolf credit. You kept saying, can you really move a company this size on AI and how dare Microsoft be honest with their assessment. So the Azure, they think it's worth multiples when you call your cloud business Azure, whatever, and that's slowing growth. And they said the back half of this fiscal year is when we should start to see AI revenue come in the door. Yeah, they announced, you know, this product, this and other, but a company that size is just not gonna move 
needle, right? The, the proverbial needle. And now you're seeing what can happen. And so the point you made, I want to bring up a point about Dan Ives and I don't like to call people out. And, mm -hmm. and that's, and I worked with Dan at FBR years ago and he was a fine analyst. He's a good bull market analyst. And he was on TV on some network the day when Microsoft earnings came out and he hadn't read the press release. Okay. This is where the state of the market's in. He said, and it was down 4% the stock. He goes, I know for a fact that tomorrow we're sitting at this side, this is a buy right now because it's going to be up tomorrow. And if you don't buy it now, it's up. And they're like, they really haven't given guidance yet because they do that later because it doesn't matter. And so when you start to see things like that, and by the way, same as when a bear comes on, he goes, yeah. doesn't matter. Stocks and go. My, my point is that when that's your thesis to the point of it's just not smoke and mirrors, but that to me, I'm like, I'm watching this. I'm like, this is a moment here yeah. in the sense of that's just not good. No, I, and I get it. And, and you go back with Dan and Dan's been on the pod and, and I, I like Dan and, and guy, you and I would both agree. It's a really hard job when you're sitting on a desk at five o'clock as the news coming out and they're asking you to comment it right there. Mm -hmm. That might've been more uh, just a sentiment that if okay. it's down, I'm okay. just saying, I'm taking the other side. His point I was- I told you we're going to other side. I know, now. but he, his point, I think, and I didn't see it. If it's down, I saw it. it should be bought because he probably had a $400 12 month price target on it. You and just he answered the question? The thing. No, and I get it. I'm just, I'm just saying- But what did I say last not week? to be an echo chamber here. Okay. What did I say? I said, pay attention to sell side analysts that raise their targets because yeah. they can't downgrade it, the stock. It, it was a great, it was. A, no, no, I'm not. A great I'm not explainer though. No, no, I but agree it, with you. I want people to understand. If they it, don't have the ability to raise estimates, but they keep raising the price target because of price, that is something that is unsustainable. And it usually happens at this stage of a mania. And we are in a mania. And so we're going to see once we've had the totality of mega cap tech earnings, okay, in the next couple of weeks or so, and we're going to see whether it's justified. My point about Microsoft is that CFO Amy Hood had talked about maybe that Copilot and their AI tools was going to be their quickest business to $10 billion in revenue. And all I said to you guys last Friday on the pod was that the moment that they released the pricing, it rocketed $130 billion and it was trading at 13 times sales if you were going to take her on that $10 billion number that we don't know whether it's going to happen or not one way or another. I'll just say this. Tesla reported last week. Netflix reported last week. They were both down 9.5% the day after. They barely seen an uptick. We're Thursday into the close. Both stocks are about to make new 10-day lows or something like that. So Microsoft continues to go lower. We know that Meta gapped up a little bit. We know Alphabet gapped up. Let's see if they don't fill in those gaps by the time we get to Apple and Amazon. And to me, that might signal, Guy, that the fever is broken. Now, it, it, we would be foolish to suggest that this money is not finding a home, okay? And on a day like today where we saw that the requirements, the capital requirements for banks that have had a nice run since their earnings, the stocks were barely down on that, up 19% in capital requirements. Some of these industrials, look at the way transports have acted. They're making new highs that seemingly every day. So money is finding a home right now. Oh yeah. And let's talk about something very important that happened that I think is very structurally positive for the overall markets was the deal Bank of California buying PacWest yeah. with the help of JP Morgan, Warburg Pincus, and Centerbridge Partners. And people are like, oh, the government wasn't involved. Of course the government was yeah. involved. They had to approve. They have to, they had to watch every step. They match made the yeah. whole thing, which is fine. It's going to get approved. The deal is going to be done. There's a lot more that'll probably come. And that's a big positive. Now the bigger banks will get bigger in inevitably, but you're changing hands and you're making it. A, Guy a, said something really smart as that news was crossing the headline. We were on the desk at Fast Money. And again, this goes to some guys who are just smart. They can say smart things. 
Guy said something like, well, it's kind of interesting that was announced on the eve of the Fed meeting. You did say that, Guy. Do you think mm-hmm. that was like a tidy little thing that gave... By, you know, ch- by the ch- way, just for the record, do you know how much Warburg and Cernerbridge already made? $80 million on that trade already. You mentioned the fever breaking. I'll tell you, Dan, and we went, we talked about Dave Mason before and his hit song, We Just Disagree. I think this is something that we might just disagree on, but very quietly, crude oil's at levels we haven't <laughs> seen since April. So either side of 80 bucks. Mm-hmm. Okay, that's fine. Not all that interesting. I'll tell you what is interesting. Gasoline making a new 52-week high, and this is not just a U.S. thing. Now, this is a global phenomenon where gas prices are on the rise. That does not help. And I will tell you something, and I'm not saying I'm right, but I think one of the reasons, Danny Moses, that the Fed is as hawkish as they are, and they continue the rhetoric in the wake of seemingly winning the fight against inflation because they know that inflation is going to reaccelerate over the next few months. Maybe not August necessarily, but September, October, November, things are going to get really interesting, which is why they need to be as hawkish as they are, why I don't think the inflation dragon has been slayed at all, and why this market, which seems to think they're going to be rate cuts in the beginning of the next year, is completely offsides. You don't need inflation to even go up to maintain a hawkish stance, right? If it just stays where it is. And remember, we got the easy comps on inflation, right? We're now going to get the more difficult comps on inflation when you get the July CPI number, right? Because those comps already came through. So I agree. And these higher energy prices are not going to help and higher wheat prices are not going to help. And they do see that. And I thought he did a fine job. I know I was joking about the aliens, but he did a fine job on the press conference. He said, listen, I got two more job supports. I got two CPI numbers are going to be coming out before I have to make any other decision. So basically F off. That's the answer. It wasn't, it didn't give you anything. They continue to unwind their balance sheet. We'll get an update tonight. I'm curious to watch as we, if we go below 8 trillion over the next kind of month and a half, like again, we're draining liquidity out of the market. We've talked about the refill at treasury in terms of replenishing treasury, so to speak, by issuing short-term bills as opposed to bonds, right, that are out there. So longer-term bonds. So a lot going on. And let me just go back to what we said at the very beginning of this. And I said it kind of tongue-in-cheek. And who knows what the Bank of Japan is going to do. But the point is, that's how sensitive we are to liquidity of the global central bank. That's all I'm pointing out. Mm -hmm. All the other stuff is just kind of noise. We can play around with the S&P between 3,800 and 4,600 or now 4,700, whatever this crazy. That's what this has all been about from the very beginning. In the middle of it all, you can have companies that are doing, Boeing had a Good. Qu- I'm just saying. Yeah, like, but you, stuff made, you made the, you made this point. I, I think on many occasions, Danny, since March, is that the Fed had been taking down their balance sheet from what nine trillion, and they got right before SVB went down to eight point four or something like that. It just took what a few hundred billion to it took get, a banking crisis. Yeah, it took a banking crisis, but then to put in a few hundred billion back into the system that sparked a literally 20% rally in the S&P 500 from the lows in March. So it doesn't take a whole heck of a lot when the base is $8.5 trillion or something like that. So uh, again, I'm with you. And that's something, what do you think though, could we wake up in the morning? We know that these central banks have been fairly coordinated. We know that obviously we're closer to the end of our rate hiking cycle, right? But they've intimated the fact through their hawkish rhetoric that rates are going to stay higher for longer. We know that what's gone on in China, they're more in an easing stance, but central banks have been fairly coordinated on this. Can the BOJ come out and just send a curveball to our economy at this point? Because it really is not just the markets. They would repatriate money, to your point. They would sell our treasuries, right, to go out there and do their. You're seeing that, again, I don't want to get too granular here, but you saw that when I say today is Thursday, we're seeing the spike. 
in 10-year yields. You can look at it through the lens of the TLT, which got hammered today. And there are a number of different things going on. And Danny, you mentioned this as well. And I follow Kelly Evans on the Twitter. And it's interesting because she's usually pretty down the middle, but she tweeted something about hot take from a source meeting just now. Treasury is purposely issuing T-bills to avoid spiking long-term rates before the election. Now, I think they're trying, and Danny, you said this as well, Treasury has to re-up th- their balance sheet in the form of about $1.4 trillion. I think last week, Mike Wilson said they were roughly halfway there. But in order to do that, they have to sell debt. And I think they're trying to buy themselves some time, well, which is great until the market calls bullshit on them, which again, this is just anecdotal for one day, but seemingly today, some things are starting to happen. Isn't the election in 15 or 16 months? Not in, okay, so I I think that's bullshit. They are competing basically against the Federal Reserve who's going through quantitative tightening, rolling off 60 odd billion per month of treasury. So they're competing against them. So it's T-bills and or that they believe that long-term yields may come in over time. I, I don't know, but they're taking a shortcut here to build, replenish post-debt ceiling, quote, crisis to do it. We'll see. But I want to point out two other quick things if I could just shift gears on. And and I always use it as a temperature gauge on the market and the mania and retail. And two things happened in the last week. One was Carvana, which we didn't really talk about last week, which had to come out and raise capital, refinance their debt, extend and pretend, whatever. And the stock rallied from, call it 39 or 40 again, the night that we were on Fast Money together, 39 or 40 to, I think it almost hit 60 or something in some pre or post market. At some point, we're right back to the levels that it, that it was. And Ernie Garcia, the second and third, were forced to buy stock on this over a billion dollars worth, whatever. Point is that, yes, it's large short interest, but keep in mind, there's large short interest because debt holders hedge out their positions. Mm-hmm. That's part of it. So we'll never fully be covered. But AMC is the other one. And AMC had a court ruling, uh, Delaware, last Friday evening. Again, who cares? So you have these AMC shares and APE shares. So Adam Aaron was couldn't get approval, remember, from his shareholders to issue new common stock. So he issued these APE, these preferreds. And the AMC shareholders went crazy. You're not going to delude us. This is ridiculous. And the Delaware court basically put a temporary stop on the ability to raise money and convert these ape to AMC shares. And so AMC shareholders start celebrating. I'm like, why are you celebrating? Because they're going to have to raise capital. So now what? Are you going to approve the issuance of common shares? My point is that AMC stock went from 450 to 650. Again, I'm making up generic number and it's right back where it was again. So I tell people this, oh, Danny, you're wrong. You're bearish. I guys, it's just common sense. Don't get caught up in the mania out there. Don't FOMO yourself on these names. You got to buy quality names. And when you see the market presents itself, opportunities every day on the quality side, there are companies that are trading at 12 times earnings, 13 times earnings. You hear from Porter and Vinny, they've been on our show to look at this Camco, this CCJ, it's a uranium play. Look what that stock has done. Petrobras, look what that stock has done. There are places without looking to have to figure out, oh, what's going on in emerging markets. I get it. But my point is that you don't need to spend your time and money in those areas. And it doesn't matter if you're bullish or bearish on the overall, there's always opportunities. And so this echo chamber that people accuse us of being in, it's not that at all. You're going to get opportunities now, hopefully, right? And the market dislocates itself. But again, who knows? Well, it's funny. So this takes us back to a period in 2021 where we were seeing a lot of this sort of behavior where it was a bit of a fool's rush in sort of thing. And I think it's interesting that you mentioned those two names. They have literally round tripped those entire moves. So short-term traders who are looking to be opportunistic are trading them. And listen, we know they exist and we're not trying to poo-poo that sort of activity. But your point more, Danny, is to people who are looking for investment ideas. And when they're thinking that is something that makes a whole heck of a lot of sense, or like some of the stuff that we saw 
with some of the SPACs a couple years ago or unprofitable techs, recent IPOs. There was just a frenzy for all of it. And I think it's important to look at some of these charts. They have not recovered in any way, shape, or form. And your point about Carvana, if you're just looking at a one-year chart, 60 was the 52-week high that it got back to. But pull it out, people, because it was 460, wasn't it? Two and a half years ago. And so this year's move almost looks like a bit of a blip. I think it just speaks a little bit to the animal spirits that exist in the market right now because some of the stuff that we're seeing that were legitimate names, when you bought Netflix, okay, at $80 and it went to 280 or something like that in a year, there's some fundamental support for that, okay? But when they announced the quarter that they just did and guided to what they did, it's no longer that great of a trade anymore. And that's why you're seeing people rush for the door at the same time. And we're seeing this, maybe that's the case in Microsoft. Maybe that's what we'll see from Apple from an all-time high or Amazon after it's rallied 50 or 60% in nine months or so. But I, we might be getting towards the end, and that goes back to guy, the fever breaking here a little bit. We might be in that period and, hey, stick around in this echo chamber because I think we're good in these environments. Well, the echo chamber, say what you want. I will tell you, and we say this all the time, in our world, when you're early, you're typically wrong. Totally get that. I understand it fully. But Danny Moses has been talking about something now for the last almost two years. And there was a quote off of PMI from S&P Global. I want to read it. I want Danny to comment. July is seeing an unwelcome combination of slower economic growth, weaker job creation, gloomier business confidence, and sticky inflation. Also of importance, business optimism about the year-ahead outlook has deteriorated sharply to the lowest level seen so far this year. The darkening picture adds downside risk to output growth in the coming months, which alongside the slowing in the pace of expansion in July, will keep alive the fear that the U.S. economy yet succumbed to another downturn before the year is out. Sticky inflation, slower growth. These are all the things, Danny, that you highlighted. I want to say not this past spring, but the spring of 2022. Thoughts? Your stagflation, where is your past? Yeah, listen, that's a microcosm of what stagflation is. And just to be clear, the economy obviously has done better than I thought it would over the course of the year. I think I underestimated how much government programs and spending have added. Some of these programs have added in the fiscal stimulus, the monetary stimulus that kind of comes in. And I think all we did, as I mentioned last week, was push out this prediction six to nine months. And again, there's no can't go back and say, oh, great job trading because it hasn't been for the first half of this year. That being said, I'll say it again, every day is a new underwriting opportunity and new information comes in. And I think the Fed was talking about it yesterday. They're seeing signs, but they're not seeing really signs in the employment area as of yet, but they do expect it to weaken to some degree over time. And until we get that, I guess I'm just going with the camp that you really can't be aggressive, obviously, on the short side of things until you see that. And I'm willing to stop trying to time the market on the short side. But guy, to that point, that's the ultimate nightmare. Go back to what you talked about 15 minutes ago, energy prices going back up, right? Food prices going back up in the middle of all this, when the economy actually does start to slow, potentially when central banks are draining liquidity, us with quantitative tightening, Japan, potentially something ECB raising rates today. In the middle of all of this, let's also not forget something that bullish that happened, at least from a optical perspective, was China now coming out and now trying to bail out the real estate sector. China's really been doing a lot in the last month to spur on the confidence more than anything in their economy. And the housing is a 
key area. Well, they, their stocks don't rally either. Well, those every, did. Those, those real estate stocks did that day. No, no, but, no. But right. I mean the Shanghai. Oh, the Shanghai does No, no. What I'm saying, it, do, it doesn't rally. I'll, I'll just say this. And, and, they don't care as much about but their stocks. You know stock what's funny? Rate. I think just so you guys know, and, and Guy, I'm going to say you were really early on this about inflation picking up and the comps and everything like that. I actually think that's going to fizzle out. If you guys are right on the economy, okay, and the leading indicators here, if you're right on Europe and China, okay, I, I think you're going to see that commodity trade. I think it's going to come back really quickly. And I think what's more powerful are the deflationary readings that we're seeing in China. And we're seeing guys like Elon Musk, who knows how important China is to him. He's actually echoing what the Chinese are saying about deflation, okay? And so to me, I think that could be one of the worst things that happens for our economy is that not only do we see whatever readings, Guy, whether you think they're correct or not, that deflation drops quickly, even if we do see this September, October, maybe a pickup in some of the readings, okay? And maybe that is a massive headwind. And if we get back into a deflationary sort of thing, we just had this GDP print, which was well above what people are expecting. It had been working up all of Q2, right? And so we just had 2.4%. What if that was a pull forward of a lot of activity here? And maybe that was one of the reasons why we've been seeing some of this inflationary stuff kind of pick up a little bit or the commodity prices pick up a little bit. And maybe it all comes back towards that 2%. And then maybe GDP gets back below 2% on its way to being negative for two consecutive quarters. Maybe we do get the recession right around the 18-month period of the first rate increase, right, from March of 2022 when we get finally to that September meeting. So to me, I think there is a picture to paint where inflation not only is broken, but growth starts to go the other way. And then we have deflationary sort of readings. It could be stagflation if the inflation goes to D, and we talked about this with oh, Wilson last week. Oh, flips to, D. to deflation. Yes, Sorry. That Mr. could Mr. be really bad no, for, it's bad because for risk earnings. asset prices. It's bad for earnings. Right, because then you have S&P that earnings was below point. 200 bucks. And by the way, for all those people that either listen to this podcast and then Mike followed up with Mike Wilson with a note on Monday, I had to call him to maintain my sanity. When I saw the headlines, Mike Wilson throws towel in, yeah. says he's wrong. That's not what he said at all. No, Again, you want to take pieces of things. And I want to talk he about- He said it here first. Well, he said it here, but people listen. If you go back yeah. and listen to the podcast, he wasn't, he's just like, listen, the market's up, so I'm wrong. I'm supposed to be a strategist. I'm wrong near term, but I don't change my thesis. I look at Alphabet today, right? Great quarter, beat by what, eight, 12 cents on the earnings line, beat by a couple billion almost on the top line and stock goes up and now it's down on day. And I'm not trying to predict where it's going to go tomorrow. But my point is that it had already rallied so much. What is the incremental kicker that you get by beating? I would argue that all these companies are already pricing in, obviously, up earnings and going to be bump great company, not shitting on it at all, would never be shorted. But I just think, again, from a psychology perspective, what you're dealing with on the incremental news that you read on the tape, the way that companies that are managed well, and Ruth Porat has done an incredible job managing, you can see she's now president and, and she's going to carry multiple titles here, is by conditioning the street by being smart with your investors, under-promising and over-delivering. That's what good companies are supposed to do. So God forbid they had missed numbers. Dan, I can't imagine where the stock would be. But my point is that just understand the game a little bit more out there if you're trying to trade these inflection points. And this is the wrong time. I'm not saying the market's going to sell up. This is the wrong time to FOMO right now. The fear of missing out right now, this is the wrong time. That I feel strongly about. So As important as this week was earnings-wise, Dan mentioned it, alluded to it earlier, but I think I just want to bring up a couple companies next week. Tuesday, which is the first day of August, AMD after the bell. Go back again and listen to their last earnings call. The stock closed, I think, on May 4th. Don't at me if I'm off by a day, around 89. In the after hours, it traded down to 81, proceeded to go up almost 60% over the next couple of months on the back of 
some sort of relationship with Microsoft to compete with NVIDIA, AI, AI, AI. Let's see how that plays out. Starbucks, valuation story for sure. They're after the bell on Tuesday, Dan, as well. These are the ones I'm just looking at. I'm just curious, what do you think is important? Qualcomm on Wednesday is quasi-important. But I tell you what, you know, you look at a couple names, Alibaba, Amazon, and Apple on Thursday. That's where things are going to get really interesting. Yeah. So let me hit a couple of these things really quickly. So Starbucks, if you remember, was making 52-week highs in early May, and they had a miss in a guy that was not particularly great. The stock went from 115 down to 104 in a straight line. And the stock is not traded particularly well until it just joined the party a little bit. It was trading at $96 just a couple of weeks ago. Again, so the stock was trading at 115 prior to its last report. There's some China stuff there. There's global growth. There's inflation. There's a whole host of things that are wrapped up in this one. And I actually think that'll be a really interesting one, especially as we're trying to get a better read on consumer discretionary, specifically here in the U.S. Your point about AMD is a good one. Qualcomm less so guy. We know that smartphones are weak and that's where they're really exposed here. Apple is going to be obviously the big kahuna. Amazon is interesting. If you want to strip out AWS and you want to think about a company that was growing sales there a year ago, 40% plus, and it's expected to be in the low teens. And you think about where their exposure is on the enterprise for their cloud. It's small and medium-sized business. So a smaller sort of subset of companies than maybe Microsoft's Azure or Google Cloud, that one's going to be really interesting. And then also North American retail. So to me, I think there's a lot of really interesting earnings. And the other thing, Danny, we were talking about as far as FOMOing here, we've noticed this. We spend so much time on earnings. Oftentimes when the banks get things kicked off, whatever the mood that they set, and it was a bullish mood. And some of the stocks that had traded very poorly, like a Bank America, went up 10, 15% in a straight line, still unchanged on the year, interestingly enough, massively underperforming a JP Morgan that's up 20% on the year. They set a very positive tone for the most part. And then we had companies with lowered outlooks last quarter, slightly lower, beating those lowered bars. But oftentimes towards the end of earnings season, a lot of the enthusiasm or pessimism that churns by the end of it. And I think we could be on the precipice of that. And if one of those companies, really Apple in particular, were to disappoint on the guidance, just for all intents and purposes, people, the, the iPhone build for the 15, which is going to be announced in September and released in October, it doesn't sound like it's going particularly great. And we know that smartphones in general and PCs are weak and they don't have a generative AI story to talk about right now. The Vision Pro, which was the spatial computing thing that they already introduced in June, we know that's not going to be particularly a big driver one way or another. Apple could be a real damper when you consider their exposure to China, not just for demand, but also manufacturing. So to me, that's the main event when they report on August 3rd. I think more than that, just in general over the market, the third and fourth quarter earnings for the S&P are really supposed to start dropping. And so if you think about it, this is an okay quarter, it's fine, right? It's going to be down, I believe, right? Year over year, earnings are down negative year over year. Is it going to get worse? Or is this the best that we're going to potentially see? And if that's the case, and this is the setup, and I'm sorry, but the Fed raising to five and a quarter, five and a half over period, I know people are like, if I told you that it's soft landing, this, there's an impact. People it may not be as pronounced right now as you think it is, but just keep reading periodicals. That's a good word from when we were kids, but reading the journal, look at the companies that aren't public, right? That you don't really care about that are can't get financing. Company just got financing at 15%, 16% publicly traded company. You start to think about those things and the impact that it has, right? The haves and the have nots, it's happening in real time. And so you don't see it right away. It doesn't impact you. You know employment. who the biggest employers are in America? Small businesses. By the way, I know we still haven't seen anything on Barry Diller as it relates to Activision, but did you see the Joe Lewis, the owner of Tottenham, 
right? Who's been basically running money for years. Tottenham Hotspur. Remember, he was the billionaire that bought Bear Stearns literally the eve of its collapse and whatever. But he literally, you people have to read how grotesque this insider trading was and the shell companies that were set up over periods of time. Instead of tipping his private jet pilots, he would give them money to go buy stocks and names that he knew were going to get to. It's crazy. It's can't wait to see this movie. But anyway, at least the SEC is doing something, but it's a crazy story. So yes, I don't know, guy, I don't know if you're interested in buying Tottenham. You might have a shot at this thing. Yeah, after I, may. All, so. I, I have no interest in the hot spurs. But before we get out of here, it was your birthday. Could you just give our audience, they like to get behind the scenes, share with the audience what you did on your birthday, a little dinner, a little, a little Home Depot, a little Bed Bath & Beyond. I don't, I don't know. know. It's going to yeah, be crazy. No, it was it was pretty mellow. The wife and kids, and they're not kids anymore, the 21 and 22. Dan got me a nice reservation at Pastis here in New York. Oh, I will yeah. tell you, Dan, it was amazing. They do force you out of there in about an hour and seven minutes. Not so, me, but they force you, they you out. Me out hour and if, seven if, minutes. If you, if you walk in at a Dan Nathan reservation and you're not Dan Nathan, they're going to get you. That's, yeah, yeah, okay. It was actually pretty mellow. However, the weekend in Saratoga was a lot of fun, guy, and I consider that a Oh, weekend yeah. birthday celebration. You've never been to Saratoga, folks. I've been to Saratoga. You have oh, to go. Yes, it's like going back in time. It's like going to a bygone era, an era where I probably should have been born. Like to Billy Bathgate's time. See what I did there? Yeah, it was pretty good. All right, here's, guys, we got a little housekeeping here. We're going to do something fun this week. We're having a giveaway. A hundred of our listeners for the prize of a free On The Tape water bottle. All you have to do is enter a review of On The Tape podcast wherever you listen to your podcast and email a screenshot of your review to contact at Risk Reversal along with an address for us to send you a water bottle. How about that? The first hundred people I would fill it. to leave a review, you were going to get a water bottle. No, anyway. I would fill it full of vodka, make it more enticing when they're going to be no, receiving it. We're not going to do that. Okay. You know, not across right. like state lines. Maybe or you have, like you have that. two sizes bottles I've seen, maybe two bottles. Right. Maybe. No, you're just, I don't just, know. I think that's exciting enough. Review, email Amanda, contact at risk reversal, enter a screenshot, get an on the tape water bottle. There won't Fine. be anything in it. Okay. Right. People just enjoy, but like, listen, leaving reviews, it helps people find the show guy. And that's what we want to do. We want more people to find the show. Is it contact at risk reversal.com? The yes. There yeah. you go. We want you to smash the shit out of the like button. Contact at risk reversal.com. Leave a review. These are not cheap. These are like those legit. You know who wrote that copy and found the water bottle was our amazing intern, Millie, who's leaving today. It's her final day. So thanks to Millie. She's been great. We have a new intern coming in August. He's a lax bro. And we'll tell you all, you're going to hear about him because he's going to be Rafus's intern. But we got a couple lax bros who are going to be taking the helm in August for us here. All right. That's about it, guy. Danny and I had an awesome conversation with Joe Saluzzi. We he's did. the partner and managing founder. The theme is trading. Stick around for that. With CME Group's micro-sized futures and options, you can access the same transparency and liquidity of the benchmark contracts with less upfront financial commitment. Diversify your portfolio and manage your exposure with the flexibility of CME Group micro-contracts in crypto, metals, FX, energy, and equity indices. Learn more about what adding futures can do for you at cmegroup.com slash micros. iConnections is the world's largest capital introduction platform in the alternative investment industry. iConnections membership only platform brings together the asset management community, providing allocators and managers with the opportunity to connect both physically and virtually. With an impressive network of over 4,000 allocators and 900 managers, their community oversees an astounding $48 trillion and $16 trillion in assets, respectively. 
iConnections is also the driving force behind the alternative investment industry's most renowned in-person events. We invite you to join iConnections at their upcoming event, Salt iConnections in New York, taking place on May 20th through the 21st at the Glass House in New York City. This two-day event is packed with one-on-one cap intro meetings and content. To explore more about iConnections events and gain access to their members-only platform, visit iConnections.io. We are joined today by Joe Saluzzi. He's a partner and co-founder at Themis Trading. Danny, you've had a long relationship with Joe. Uh, you guys go way back. He was also one of the first guests of On The Tape Podcast. I think it was in February of 2021. Yeah, so Themis Trading, where I could trust actually where my orders would go, <laughs> they'd be watching out for us because they understood the plumbing, so to speak, a lot of people didn't ahead of time. And I'll take it one step further. Everybody knows Michael Lewis and the Big Short, the book right after Big Short was Flash Boys. And Michael leaned on Joe a lot in that because Joe had written a book called Broken Markets in 2012 and testified in front of Congress as really been on top of this from the very beginning. And I think the one thing that I think falls on deaf ears into retail, you know, is what's really happening to them and why should they care? And it's always been. And then I think the institutional community with the founding of IEX, right? A lot of people were backing that, including myself at the time, as I know you guys are and good friends of, of IEX as well, just trying to understand the plumbing. And Michael Lewis went to you guys uh, for a lot of information. I know to help educate him when he wrote Flash Boys. And so you guys were kind of right around broken markets. Dark Pools was written around that same time period, just explaining what was happening in the markets. And it's this underworld people don't want to know about. I think they have willful ignorance to not want to know. But I will tell you, to me, it still bothers me. And you were here two years ago, as Dan mentioned, February of 2021, one of our first guests. Obviously, I couldn't wait to get you on. We got on here because it's a passion of mine. Even though I'm not trading institutionally right now, and even though I'm not involved, it still makes me nuts what these guys get away with. So with that, welcome back on the tape. Um, Set the stage for us. You built a company on the premise of transparency and just let our listener who maybe didn't grow up in an institutional trading world understand the problems that you think exist, Danny, and then you guys built a business in around it and you have clients who've been trading with you for two decades because of that transparency. Talk to us a little bit about what the problem is yeah. and what you guys, what the, what your mission is at Themis. A testament to us is 21 years later, we're still around. In a world of high-frequency trading algorithms, speed connections, and everything else, how does a small firm in New Jersey still survive? It's because we understand the plumbing. And this is exactly where the problems, like Danny said, are. And with most institutional traders today are trading through algorithms. And the algorithms are created by broker-dealers. And a lot of these algorithms have certain conflicts of interest, whether they're going to their own dark pool first, a friend's dark pool, maybe they're going to the lowest cost destination, and that's where this fragmentation problem is a big issue. But we figured out a long time ago is the way you trade is for us to stay in business, we needed to be the anti-algorithm. In other words, we're still hands-on. We're still physically, I'm using electronic connections, of course, but I'm not using a predetermined, pre-scheduled algorithm like most other institutional traders and brokers are using. We're using our own heads. We're watching the tape. We're looking at things. Obviously, my economies of scale are smaller than a bigger firm, but it makes sense. And for our clients, they're saving money. They're saving on transaction costs. It keeps us around. We're somewhere in between that high-touch, low-touch model that they call on the street where low-touch is just hitting the algorithm. High-touch is still block-crossing. There are still firms out there like Jones and Canner and so on that do a tremendous job of finding blocks and putting them together, and that's great. But we're in between where we're saying, we're going to work this thing. We're going to find you that liquidity, and we're going to be really quiet about it. No one's going to know who I am. For those that don't know, I mean, we go back in time here, the advent of a lot of this happened when we went to pennies and went to hundreds of a penny and thousands of a penny. That really opened the door to all of this. And so that's where all the technology meets speed to me should never be a determining factor on investing, right? It became that speed. You and I get the same 
information at the same time, but you get ahead of me because you're buttoned, because you're co-location. So for people out there that don't understand about high-frequency trading and the essence of it and and order, and Bernie Madoff helped start this whole thing, that's a whole nother conversation Mm -hmm. we should go into. Just spend a couple minutes and explain just the difference and what is high-frequency trading? Who are the big players in it currently and why should they care? Like you said, decimalization really fragmented. We went from eights to quarters to eights to sixteenths to down to decimals. Along with that, we had demutualization of the exchanges. They used to be private. The New York Stock Exchange, the venerable New York Stock Exchange, no one messed with them. 80% market share. As soon as they went, they shattered that. They went public afterwards. Things changed a lot for the stock market. And then we had Reg NMS, which was a earth change. Everything changed in 2007 where every destination you had to clear, it was a trade-through rule. And this really opened the door for the high-frequency traders. Even before 2007, they were active. I was back at Instanet pre-2002, and high-frequency traders were out there then. They were using Instanet's data feed to pick people off. They were doing things back then. But then it really opened up. Exchanges got in the business of saying, hey, we need to cater to our biggest clients. And who are our biggest clients? So you can name them. Back then, they used to be called Getco, and then obviously Citadel's in there, and Jump, and Tower recent. Oh, they're all out there. There's tons of them, DRW, and they're still out there. But back then, the profits were much bigger for them. There was the competition, it was a, a new fertile ground. So they came through, and the stock exchanges realized we got to make these guys happy. So they started creating things for them private data feeds, proprietary data feeds, co location facilities. The New York Stock Exchange owns their entire facility in Mawa, New Jersey, which is basically, it's actually a Department of Homeland Security protected site. That's how important it is. But to get in there, and to get a line in there, you've got to pay a king's ransom to the exchanges. So the exchanges realize, hey, we're going to make money on selling data and data-related products rather than making money on stock transactions. Because when they make, when there's a trade that goes off right now on an exchange, they're making maybe two or three mils a share. That's two one-hundredths of a penny. It's basically nothing. That's not where they're making their money. Look at NASDAQ's balance sheet and their income statement. You'll see stock trading doesn't really amount to much. Data sales amounts to a lot and data-related sales. So the HFTs realize that. They created the speed game, which Michael did a great job outlining in his book. And he talked about spread networks back then. That was like a, a company that was drilling a hole through the mountain of Pennsylvania mountains right. to get to Chicago faster. That was, pretty, that was fascinating. Right? That was a fascinating read. Yeah. But l- let me ask you this, because I remember reading it at the time and I grew up in the institutional world also, but I always remember, I like dealing with high touch people that you trusted, right? You knew that they had your best interest in mind because if they screwed you on something, you wouldn't pick up the phone and call them on the next one. So bring it back to, let's say, our listeners here. Let's say they're self-directed investors. Let's say they listen to podcasts like this or they watch CNBC. They follow people there. They get good ideas from what maybe it's the, their financial advisor. But let's say they're self-directed and they're trading 100 shares of stock or 500 shares of stock or whatever. Let's say they're doing it on an electronic platform. How are they disadvantaged by high-frequency trading, payment for order flow? These were topics that we were talking about two years ago when you were on with us because there was an all-out meme stock frenzy. There was a big short squeezes. There seemed to be people online who wanted to stick it to the man. At the end of the day, isn't it pretty clear that a lot of retail investors didn't really care that much about payment for order flow. They just cared the speed in which, and Danny, you're shaking your head here. I, I think it's actually, I'll give you two examples of a retail trader who may or may not care. So the first one is, it's going to buy 100 shares, maybe trades every once a month, and they're going to buy 100 shares of, I don't know, Intel. Easy. Boom. Hit the button. Mm-hmm. They're not going to have a problem. This market has plenty of liquidity in, in Intel. There's plenty of volume there. They won't have a problem. Let's take another example of a retail trader that maybe wants to trade a small cap stock. And now the Intel's trade, let's just say it's a penny spread, okay, mm-hmm. which it probably is. Let's go to the small cap stock and maybe the spread is 20 cents and the small retail trader wants to buy 500 shares. So he says, well, I'm not going to cross the spread. I'm going to go out and post my own limit order and tighten up that spread. 
So he places a bid 10 cents higher than the current bid, tightens the spread up to 10 cents. 10 cents bid now for 500 shares. And let's just say I'm out there and I'm looking at it going, okay, I'll sell you that 500 shares right here. I go to sell it to him. He doesn't get filled because someone steps ahead of him because that order is not being routed from the retail broker to that lit bid. Because if it does, I'm the lit buyer on the exchange, that buyer who, who posted the limit. He'll have to pay a fee. If, so the retail broker, when they sell to an exchange, has to pay a fee. If they sell it and they go to a market maker, they get paid. So there's your conflict of interest. You have to kind of look at different types of retail traders, active ones. What types of stocks are they trading in? Inactive ones, what types of stocks are they trading in? Let me put this in layman terms here. The reason that Schwab and E-Trade, when they were independent, and when Meritrade, when they were independent, was trading was for free. When anyone offers you anything for free on the mm -hmm. retail or the institutional side, I'll get to that in a minute, you have to ask yourself, what, why would you do that business for free? To Joe's point, they were selling that flow right, to the citadels mm -hmm. and the get-goes of the world, they would sell the flow. Not only would they sell the flow, they would market as retail, mm -hmm. which who's the sucker, right? Who's the sucker? It's not institutional. Let me take that further. Sitting on the institutional desk, being the head trader at a hedge fund, running billions of dollars, right? From point, Credit Suisse would come in and they're doing business for free. I'm like, well, hold on a second. You guys take us to nice golf outings. We go to dinners. What, why, why am I the beneficiary? And that's when my head exploded in kind of 2000, I want to say seven, eight, around that time period. Forget that was the great financial crisis at the time. It just happened to be also the advent of all these dark pools because I was trading against a dark pool. I was actually trading against a proprietary trader that had more information than me. Let me take it one step further. I always draw this comparison, Joe. If I'm a CEO of a biotech company, which I'll never be, and found a cure for a horrible disease, which I could never do, and I had the information and I told you, hey, Joe, by the way, we just found a cure for this. We're announcing it in a week. That's inside information. Mm -hmm. You would never do Absolutely. that and you would never trade on it. But let's just say for product purpose, that happens out there. Stock's $10. There's a 99% chance the stock's going higher, right? Barring some of it was built into the price. Still 1% chance that it doesn't because maybe the market doesn't believe it. Maybe someone else has a cure and no one believes it. There is 100% chance that these market makers make money with zero risk, zero. And you'll hear the argument that, oh, we put out, we put a, we're at risk all the time. We have bids sitting out there. We can get hit. And Maybe that's true to a degree, but the stuff that bothers me the most is people that want to play in this business, right? And people, everyone takes risk, mm -hmm. right? Everyone says, yeah, but in the old days on the floor, you're dealing with the guy on the floor. Well, he's going to bed with the position. She's going to bed with the position. She's at risk, right? She's taking that risk. They see your trade coming. They see the buyer and the seller, and all they do is execute ahead of you on speed. That person should never exist. They're not providing any liquidity into the market. Secondly, and then you can go, go off ahead. on this. Go I want to, this Keep is very going. important Keep going. on the institutional side. And when you realize when you're dealing in 100 shares, you're right, Dan, why should the retail person care? And I'll get into why there's flash crashes every day going on in various names, is that if there's 100,000 share trade, 200,000 on stocks that trade three, 4 million a day, if a print goes off of 25,000 shares and you're trying to buy 200 and you believed that there's 200,000 shares out there to buy that disappeared because these flash traders disappear, stock now moves up. My execution as an institutional trader, which affects pension funds, firefighters, everybody just got worse. There is a psychological impact to the chase that goes on. So a print of 20, I won't go oh, with yeah. this. I'm not going to get too wonky here, you Joe. I got wonky here. Mm -hmm. People have to understand the dynamic. And when you look at intraday charts of companies, you can see it. I know you see it. You're like a doctor. You're like a heart doctor mm -hmm. looking at an EKG when something doesn't oh, look right. Absolutely. And you see it and it rectifies itself over time. So I just threw a lot out there because I want people to understand there is an impact. And anyway, so please, with yeah. all of that nonsense, Please go. No, you're absolutely right. And I laugh sometimes at the term liquidity. What is liquidity? Oh, we'll supply you liquidity. Uh, liquidity is, I, I think so, 25,000 shares right now. Would you like to buy that? No, I don't think so. Because market makers don't want to trade with me because I'm representing institutions, multi-billion, trillion dollar institutions. They don't want to be on the other side of those trades. They want to be on the other side of the, of the, obviously, the retail orders because they're going to make money off of that. 
That's a proven tactic. And that's been going on forever with market makers. I blame the retail brokers a lot because they're out there, like you said, asking for, we're going to give you zero commissions. But take, for instance, Robinhood. Robinhood doesn't have any stock exchange memberships. How does a broker not have an exchange membership? Which means they can't route to a stock exchange. They have to route to a market maker. They have no choice. So in that situation, that's why the payment for order phone numbers were ridiculous. This all blew up in the GameStop story, and that's when the Congress got involved, and that's when the hearings have had. And now we have SEC market structure proposals, which are going to propose to change some of this. And well, that's key, proposed to change, proposed. but nothing seems to change. There's a huge fight going on. Lawyers are involved. Obviously, comment letters are in the comment period right now. To your point, this is frustrating, right? It's 21 years of me screaming, this system's rigged, you know, this system's broken. Don't say rigged, they go crazy if you say rigged. But the market, the reason why the book was called Broken Market is because the, the market is broken. You're trying to find the other side. I don't want all this noise in between. It's a so simple people understand process. what IEX did, they, they started their exchange based upon the fact that speed shouldn't matter. They mm -hmm. put a speed bump in so that these kind of signals couldn't yeah. go out there and, and send out a submarine to report back what's out there and come back to you on a sonar. Like they got rid of that stuff and it's gaining market share. They don't have a ton, but they are, people well, like to trade well, there. Yeah, I'll tell you something yeah. about IEX. People say, oh, they only have a 2% market share. As an institutional broker, I'll tell you right now, we're trading 40, sometimes 50% of our volume every day on IEX. So how can that be? How can you be a 2% market? Because first of all, I feel extremely comfortable. I'm not going to get picked off because the main reason is the speed bump is nice, but they do not have what they call a proprietary data feed on an order by order basis. They have an aggregated feed, but in other words, you can't, if I go out there and I post a bid on IEX and I light it up, nobody knows. But that that's 2%, just to be clear, it's 2% of the volume, that's real volume. The other 98% is some of it's double counted. There's a, I mean, to well, a degree, because it's not it's double counted, it's, it's noise. I would yeah. say there's a lot of noise volume in the day. It's jokers flipping around for a rebate. It's right. just a I'm lot saying of it's, it's not, it's, right. It's Most not of those real. are, I guess my point it's, is a lot of the IEX flow is fundamental yes. investor. And, and take out the opening and the close too, because they're not involved. They're not, an exchange, they're not a primary exchange, so they're not participating in the opening or the close. And for instance, the New York Stock Exchange, a significant percentage of that volume is the opening and close. Right, let, let's bring over some other fundamental issues that go on. So you have this consolidated tape, right? I, explain the difference of how these firms can show, quote, price improvement when the timestamp is different than what's actually going on the live bid offer on a screen. So explain that. Let, let's use the example I was at before when I was posting the bid for 500 shares and I improved the bid. If somebody wants to sell in a market and they route it, let's just say Robinhood's the broker, I'll use them as an example, and they route it to go hit that bid, it's going to go to the market maker. So what you're going to see is a price of, if I'm bidding 10 and the best bid is 10, you'll see a price of 10.101, right. 10, 0.102. Maybe it'll give you a, a little bit more just to make it look better. But that's the market maker printing it ahead of me because they know that there's a buyer underneath, okay, ahead of that limit order. So what they do with it, maybe they're inventorying it. Maybe they flip it to a dark pool who's bidding. Maybe there's a dark pool out there in the middle of the spread. Now, they don't know that for sure, but they could buy the stock and automatically sell it into a dark pool and maybe make a couple of pennies right there. But their models are really good. They've built them over many, many years. And I think the way market makers look at it is they don't look at it trade by trade. They look at it day by day. So if we win 55% of the trades and we lose 45% and we're really good risk managers where we kick our losses right away, maybe let our winners ride a little bit more, they make money every day. But that's how, just like a casino. How does a casino make money? Because they know an aggregate, they're going to be some winners on the table, but for the most part, they're going to lose. Let's talk about what's happening right now. And then we'll work our way backwards in terms of regulation, that's out there, letters that have been written to the SEC. There's five letters for every one letter that's written opposing any changes that are going to go on because we know it has an impact on people's business. You were very vocal recently on the DTCC Clearing Corp. They had this investor kinetics and equity mm -hmm. kinetics. What are these things are? Why are they even allowing that to happen when the essence of what they're supposed to do yeah. is just to clear trade? We got a call and I'll tell you the story how it all came about. We got a call earlier in the year from a client 
And they said, hey, I just got a phone call from a DTCC representative trying to sell me a data feed. Explain well, to everyone what the DTCC is. Okay, so DTCC is Depository Trust and Clearing Corporation. They are the central clearinghouse. They, we, we don't do anything without the D. If there was ever a problem and they went down, we'd have a major problem in the stock market. Right. So they are a critical They're the Federal Reserve of stock trading. They clear it all. Yeah, they do yeah. it all, and they do a great job clearing, yep. okay? There's automated systems there. The institutions are on one side. The brokers are on the other side. Things match And they're up, owned by the banks. And I mean, they're owned by the banks. 21 yeah. people on the board, mostly banks and brokers. So it's private, and you really don't know too much about them. And for the most part, nobody really talks about the DTCC. You don't need to talk providing about Providing a service, basically. Uh, providing a service. There are obviously some retail folks who don't like them very much because of locates and things like that, but we won't get into that. Yeah. But we, so we got this call saying that they were trying to sell this data feed. Hey, check it out. Let me know what you think about it. We took a look at it and immediately I said, this thing's got stink all over it. They're out there trying to sell you back your own information. So what they basically did was since DTCC has all the information as opposed to stock exchange, so there's 16 stock exchanges, each one of them has a sliver of information. They can't put it all together. FINRA and the SEC can put it all together and the DTC can, can put it all together. So they had it all and they said, hey, we can package this product up, aggregate the data, anonymize the data, okay, which they did, but they also segmented the data. And it basically, they said that, hey, for instance, yesterday, they may have, say, 2 million shares of a stock trades. 500,000 shares of that might have been from three hedge funds. And that would be in this report. So you can start to figure out things based on that. Okay, Short who's buying, who's selling? Persona, yeah. And then you can combine that with other data feeds. There was a company out there called CloudQuant who ran the numbers and they were a partner of DTCC. So I'm shaking my head going, okay, why are they going to? They came up with a back-tested data based on signals they created from the data of 35% annual return for the last 10 years. I'd like to have 35% for the last, that's a 21% outperformance. Okay, so how can that possibly be unless the data in there is extremely valuable and very unique? So needless to say, we had some conversations. We started writing our paper. We wrote the paper. The Wall Street Journal was very interested in it. They picked it up and interviewed three institutional clients. And three clients, three institutional investors made comments about how they did not like this. So we had heard prior to that, when the paper came out, the DCCC laughed. They basically said, those guys, who, who's them is trading? A bunch of jokers in New Jersey? Who cares what they have to say? Yeah. Okay, let's see what the Wall Street Journal has to say. Let's see what three major institutional investors have to say. After that, numerous phone calls had been going back and forth between the DTCC, the institutional client base, and, and others. And they agreed a couple of weeks later, after the paper came out, to suspend the product. That's one so, of the two products. That's though. one of the two. The other one is still out there. The equity kinetics is a little bit more vague, not as detailed, but it still has information. But why, in even, why even have it? What do they make, well, $20 million a year from it when they're doing billions? I just don't understand. That's the question a lot of people have. Why is the DTCC in the data sales business? We explained before how the stock exchanges are doing it, and I get it now. Stock exchanges don't make money on trading. They make money on data sales and other related things. But why would the DCCC be doing this? Did one of their big clients ask for it? Did one of their board of directors? I don't know the answer to that. I don't know why they're doing equity kinetics. They have actually products on the, on the fixed income side as well. They've got a repo product. They've got a treasury product. So it's interesting. Others out there who want to take a look at those fixed income ones, I, I, I encourage you to take a look at them. We were kind of happy in the sense that we got a partial win. But to your point, yeah, I'd like to see the other one go away also. There's no need for these products to be out there. There's no need for a lot of the data feeds. This is one example of a data feed that we found to be not necessary. And obviously the other ones are from those stock exchanges. Now, for instance, SIBO, they've had one out earlier in the year where they were putting out trade-by-trade -trade information on short sales. So the day after, they would show you to each trade whether or not it was a long or a Crazy. short. So then you can, if you're a sophisticated HFT, you can easily backtest that and then figure out, okay, here comes a short seller. He's coming in every 10 seconds. He's got a VWAP style. So pick them up. And then guess what? You don't just trade for one day. 
multi institutions trade for multiple days and trade the same product, which is why data feeds are so damn important. So in my opinion, the SEC needed to step in, certainly in the DCCC case, which they never made a comment. To this day, we have yet to hear a comment from the SEC, and we know they know about this. We know people have told them about it, and they haven't made a comment. So who regulates that? Who's in charge? So, you know, DCCC's got this really kind of special relationship going on because they're so important. Don't mess with them because they're really important guys. And, and I agree, they are really freaking important. Without them, we've got a problem. So in the meantime, get out of the data sales business. Danny mentioned that he does get in the weeds, but that there are like flash crashes in individual names. These are up and down. Give our listener a sense of what's happened because what was it? May, 2010. When, when May 6, had, 2010. May 6, 2010, yes. when we had that flash crash. And I know that there was a lot of folks out there who really understand the plumbing the way you do said that we really haven't made too many advances. And, and some of the products that have been introduced actually raise the chances of a similar sort of event uh, again, and if you were actively trading in the market, you remember that day vividly. It was about as weird a day. And think about this. This was like two or three years after all of us were sitting on trading desks and living on a daily basis, the sort of volatility that we saw in the financial crisis. There was mm -hmm. tape bomb risk all over the place. This came out of nowhere, mm -hmm. right? So talk to us a little bit about what you think the potential for an event like that is again. Is there one that can be lights out? We keep hearing a lot about zero days to expiration mm -hmm. options and the sort of volatility dampening that it's doing, but it has the potential to go the other way. Is this something that you're looking at closely right now? I, I think it's always a concern. I don't think you're going to have another event like you had, hopefully, in, in 2008. They made a few changes. They put in limit up, down circuit breakers. They got rid of stub quotes, which were one-sided quotes. So they put in some parameters to stop that type of move. So we really haven't had that vicious move, but we've certainly seen numerous events over the last 12 years of mini flash crashes, treasury market flash crashes. This is not unique to equities. Mm -hmm, okay, this is, And overseas, we've seen flash crashes. So why do they happen? They happen because there's a vacuum of liquidity. The book empties out. It's plain and simple. What causes that book to empty out? That's debated for years. We're still debating what happened in 2010. Was it a guy in his basement in London? Was it a, a, a mutual fund in Kansas City? Was it just a system that collapsed? I don't think it's any of those two, by the way. But I, I think it's what happens is when the liquidity drops out, and we see it during the day, because a lot everybody's pegged to everybody else. And that tells me that the limit orders aren't there. You do not have deep, diverse limit order books because people don't want to light up. Because why don't they want to light up a bid or an offer? They would because call that flash. As soon as you light up your bid, as soon as you display, I should say, yep. everyone is going to know you're there. Here's a perfect example for anybody who wants to try a test. Try to post a bid, a penny better than the inside bid right now, and tell me what happens to the stock. Tell me if the offer's still there. Tell me if another joker just jumped ahead of you and he's trying to buy it ahead of you. Everybody sees it. So they're not real limit orders. They're no, it's, in other words, I'm discouraged from placing limit orders. So where do I trade? I trade in the dark. I trade on LiquidNet. I trade on bids. I trade on IEX. I trade on dark pools that I think are clean, that are going to help my clients. In the meantime, what does that do? It hurts the limit order book, right? So the specialists, we were talking about back in the day, they had 90% market share because they knew where the limits were. It was great for the specialists, but it was also good for the market in the sense that it was a orderly market. Brokers were also committing their own capital back then, what some would be called high-touch trading, which was really go out and find me a seller of 2 million. They mm -hmm. call Boston, Boston calls Kansas City, calls LA. They try to find a market. Where is this stock going to trade? And I firmly believe, and I haven't looked at the data, to your point, things still trade in eights and quarters in sense of where the aggregating volume is going to be. But I want to make one comment that you made. So back in 
2010 and the flash crash, it was a very fragmented business of market makers. You could argue now it's more dangerous because it's very consolidated. I mean, Citadel has what market share? Oh, I don't know the exact numbers, but it's got to be over 30, 40 And I'm not saying they're doing anything nefarious. Yeah. God forbid I should say that. No, but God. as a systemically important financial institution, like from a being regulated perspective, if something happens to their systems, let's say they're, mm. they're not even doing anything wrong, what happens to the trading world in that moment? That to me is a big issue. They right? are a major contributor. Ken Griffin, when he went before Congress, talked about the amount of volume that they executed during the days of GameStop when that was happening. And I forget the number, but it was so large and so significant. And he was proud of that because, and he should be, he, and he never came out of the market as opposed to other market makers who walked away at that point. But to the true your point, they are extremely important. And actually the SEC just came out with a rule or a proposal to extend what they call Reg SCI, which is a rule that really extends to exchanges right now, which is so their compliance systems and their systems are secure. The market makers don't want that because that's going to put a lot more money for them to comply with this rule. So there's going to be a fight there. All right. So Wall Street's famous for acronyms. Washington's famous for acronyms, right? As Joe talked about, these exchanges have, quote, order types. And the only reason to create all these order types is because their clients, their high-frequency trading clients come to them and say, hey, can you create a way to me to kind of route this way and go this way without going to too much? Dan, you're going to love this part. So NASDAQ will come out with some order type. They'll present it to the SEC. The SEC will have an open comment period. People like Joe will say, that makes no sense. It doesn't do anything. And one of them was called this MELO order type, mm -hmm. okay, which is great. So it got rejected or it didn't get through the first time. Correct me if I'm wrong. Ready for this? They just resubmitted it. What words do you think that they put in the order type to get the market excited about what this order type, what do you think they added? AI. Bang. Bingo. They added, first of all, this whole thing is based on it, but the fact that they put that in their yeah. new application, explain yeah. that. That order type has been out there since 2018, which originally, when it first came out, it was an institutional friendly order. It means midpoint extended life order. Mellow. mellow. Okay. And when I, when I first saw it, it. I yeah. was actually shocked that NASDAQ was doing something good. I'm always critical of them. And they hate me for that. I'm sorry, but too bad. We call it like it is. And this was like, hey, you had to have your order half a second. It had to live for a half a second. Which is an eternity. It, it, in the high frequency world, yeah. we're talking about milliseconds, microseconds, nanoseconds, depending what a half a second yeah. would be. That was great because I felt, okay, I could post a midpoint order and I only interact with other midpoint orders, mellow orders, and I'll find that liquidity that I'm looking for. I'm fine that other side because that HFT is not going to be there doing that. It's two ships crossing in the night. They could never catch any volume. So they start changing it. They start making it smaller time. Okay, now we're going to let it interact with the continuous book as opposed to just mellow orders. And then this last iteration was, we're going to shrink the time down from a half a second to two to three milliseconds. It's going to be dynamic. It's going to change based on the stock. Dynamic. It's going to be artificial until we created a model of 140 No, they actually used artificial values. intelligence. Yeah, they had all these models and 150 different parameters, but they didn't spell them out. They didn't say exactly what's going to go into it. And then you have to think, do you want a stock exchange making these decisions for you as a broker? I don't want them making the decision for me. I'm the broker. That's my job. So we wrote a letter saying this is, first of all, it's no longer a mellow order, so please change the name. And here's the white one reason. A lot of algorithms now still have mellow programmed in because they think it's a good, clean order type. So if you still think it's good and clean, and now you got the HFT jokers on the other side, fish in a barrel, my friend. Change the damn name, number one. Number two, let me know what the hell's inside this thing so I can actually, do if I wanted to back test it, I could. So just again, yeah. to bring it back, because I know we probably lose people talk about that. Yeah. I just want people to understand what's really going on behind the scenes. And in a bull market, no one cares about anything. And the stocks go up, they're what flash crash. By the way, they're getting ripped off on the way up too. It mm -hmm. doesn't matter. I want you to just hear, so I mentioned Bernie Madoff's name before. So this whole maker-taker model, right, that was set up by these exchanges, paying mm -hmm. for liquidity, right? And, and you get paid to provide liquidity and so forth. Bernie Madoff started it. So that's really all you need to know, yeah. the essence of high-frequency trading and how it really began. And it spawned 
from that make or take model. I just want people to understand the mm -hmm. construct. That's what we built yes. this base upon of yep. high frequency trading. And I will tell people out there, retail investors, I don't think can trade with you guys unless they set up some type of account, right? Yeah, you can't can. do it. But if you're an institutional investor, you didn't even tell me to say this, promote, open up an account with Joe at Themis Trading. And the reason you want to open it up, and you don't have to do a ton of business, although I'm sure you would prefer, let Thank him be you, your David. eyes and ears. If yeah. Even if you're trading away and doing 500,000 shares or something, hey, Joe, I'm going to start you out with 25,000 or something. Just give me some color. I know something's going on out there. And yeah. you are the, really one of the only people, IEX does it, but they're not mm -hmm. really facing, they tried that, they're not really facing clients. And I mean that because yeah. it can really be helpful. In the yeah, sense no, of, I, I appreciate that. And I think we do a good job. And in addition to our trading, our clients really like is our market structure work and the fact that we're out there and I'm willing to talk right now like we are talking. A lot of people will not sit in this chair and tell you what I'm telling you right now. You could they have been won't. paid millions of dollars to go to another firm. You could have been, your firm could have been acquired. I'm sure would love to buy, to take you in and, and put shut you me up, up, shut you up and <laughs> so forth. But you don't do it because you're actually passionate about yes, this. And, and you know me, I take passion over dollars I, I, any day. I'm extremely passionate. We're continuing to do what we do. I've been involved in some government committees lately. I'm on the CFTC Technology Advisory Board now, so I get to go to DC and hear what's going on I, there. I would hire a bodyguard. <laughs> Last thing, this radio frequency antenna thing yeah. that, that you just discovered. Can you just explain that? Because let's end with that. This has been going on for a number of years where HFTs use the, obviously they have these direct connects, which are going over fiber. They went to microwaves. Laser after beams. That. Lasers, microwaves, that, that tunnel through Manhattan, through the mountains of Pennsylvania. It's useless now. Anyway, about five years ago, they figured out that they can actually use shortwave radio signals. Okay, shortwave radio signals are really interesting because the way they bounce, and I did a little homework on this, is they can go longer distances, but with less data. So we're talking about two to 25 megahertz band, like the ham radio guys. And it's almost like a hobby. CB, like a CB. Yeah. And you could talk to somebody in France over your show. Smoking the it's, bandit. Yeah. It's great. And they want to use, but anyway, the HFTs figured out that we can use this to send data from Chicago to London, Chicago to Tokyo. Everything happens in Chicago. Okay. Futures rule. Futures are the way the action is. So they are using shortwave radio signals under an experimental authority granted to them by the FCC. They now figured out that they need a permanent authority because that experimental things. So they created a shortwave modernization coalition, lobbying group with a bunch of lawyers to lobby the FCC to change the law to allow them to have a private license on the shortwave bands. Now, granted, you can imagine what the shortwave ham radio operators are thinking. The comments are coming back going, these guys are going to crowd out. And they're right. You're having private enterprise. If I was an HFT not using shortwave, I'd be very upset about this because guess what? They're getting a better deal than you. And they're not paying for anything. It's they're outrageous. going through a shortwave band. So anyway, the moral of the story is they'll stop at nothing for speed. They will continue to go for the speed. Satellites will be right. next. Who knows what will be next, but they won't stop. All right. So themistrading.com, where do we find you? Yeah, themistrading.com. Joe Saluzzi on X, I guess we call it in that. Yeah, you're on Twitter. Twitter kind of died, but I don't. I haven't just, tweeted in it's, weeks. It's Dan really, got it, thrown out of there yeah, for imitating. It's, I'm not it, missing anything. We, exactly. But I do. No, we used to have a lot of good banter on there, but yeah, it's nothing. No, it's, it's, it's not good anymore. Listen, for people out there, I know. Oh, I don't care. I don't care. But for people that actually, you should care because I believe there will be a time where there's going to be, as you just mentioned, I see flash crashes in the U.S. Treasury markets every day. Things they're, they're not normal moves. It's everywhere, and so you should care that speed should not be the determining factor whether or not you make money in this market with information. That's just my fundamental rule, and some people don't agree with that, so that's fine. Joe, thanks for coming back on, and keep up the good fight. And we talk about you a lot, and any chance I get to bring up one of these points, I, I will do. And so, well, thank you for having me on. I really appreciate yeah. it. It's, it's great to talk about this stuff anytime I get a chance. That's for sure. Thanks again to our presenting sponsors, CME Group, iConnections, and FactSet.
If you like what you heard, make sure you hit follow and leave us a review. It helps other people find the show, and we also want to hear from you. Email us at contact at riskreversal.com. Derivatives are not suitable for all investors and involve the risk of losing more than the amount originally deposited and any profit you might have made. This communication is not a recommendation or offer to buy, sell, or retain any specific investment or service.